Section 32 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27. Conclusion. In all cases wherein the mind feels itself in danger of being confounded by variety, it is sure to rest upon a few strong points, or perhaps upon a single instance. Amongst a multitude of proofs, it is one that does the business. If we observe in any argument that hardly two minds fix upon the same instance, the diversity of choice shows the strength of the argument, because it shows the number and competition of the examples. There is no subject in which the tendency to dwell upon select or single topics is so usual, because there is no subject of which, in its full extent, the latitude is so great, as that of natural history applied to the proof of an intelligent creator. For my part, I take my stand in human anatomy and the examples of mechanism I should be apt to draw out from the copious catalogue which it supplies are the pivot upon which the head turns, the ligament within the socket of the hip joint, the pulley or trochlear muscles of the eye, the epiglottis, the bandages which tie down the tendons of the wrist and instep, the slit or perforated muscles at the hands and feet, the knitting of the intestines to the mesentery, the course of the chyle into the blood, and the constitution of the sexes as extended throughout the whole of the animal creation. To these instances the reader's memory will go back, as they are severally set forth in their places. There is not one of the number which I do not think decisive, not one which is not strictly mechanical, nor have I read or heard of any solution of these appearances which, in the smallest degree, shakes the conclusion that we build upon them. But of the greatest part of those who, either in this book or any other, read arguments to prove the existence of a god, it will be said that they leave off only where they began, that they were never ignorant of this great truth, never doubted of it, that it does not therefore appear what is gained by researches from which no new opinion is learnt, and upon the subject of which no proofs were wanted. Now I answer that, by investigation, the following points are always gained in favor of doctrines even the most generally acknowledged, supposing them to be true, viz. stability and impression. Occasions will arise to try the firmness of our most habitual opinions, and upon these occasions it is a matter of incalculable use to feel our foundation, to find a support in argument for what we had taken up upon authority. In the present case, the arguments upon which the conclusion rests are exactly such as a truth of universal concern ought to rest upon. They are sufficiently open to the views and capacities of the unlearned, at the same time that they acquire new strength and luster from the discoveries of the learned. If they had been altogether abstruse and recondite, they would not have found their way to the understandings of the mass of mankind. If they had been merely popular, they might have wanted solidity. But, secondly, what is gained by research, in the stability of our conclusion, is also gained from it in impression. Physicians tell us that there is a great deal of difference between taking a medicine and the medicine getting into the constitution. A difference not unlike which obtains with respect to those great moral propositions which ought to form the directing principles of human conduct. It is one thing to assent to a proposition of this sort, another, and a very different thing, to have properly imbibed its influence. I take the case to be this. Perhaps almost every man living has a particular train of thought into which his mind glides and falls when at leisure from the impressions and ideas that occasionally excite it. Perhaps also the train of thought here spoken of, more than any other thing, determines the character. It is of the utmost consequence, therefore, that this property of our constitution be well regulated. Now it is by frequent or continued meditation upon a subject, 
by placing a subject in different points of view, by induction of particulars, by variety of examples, by applying principles to the solution of phenomena, by dwelling upon proofs and consequences, that mental exercise is drawn into any particular channel. It is by these means, at least, that we have any power over it. The train of spontaneous thought, and the choice of that train, may be directed to different ends, and may appear to be more or less judiciously fixed, according to the purpose in respect of which we consider it. But in a moral view, I shall not, I believe, be contradicted when I say that, if one train of thinking be more desirable than another, it is that which regards the phenomena of nature with a constant reference to a supreme intelligent author. To have made this the ruling, the habitual sentiment of our minds, is to have laid the foundation of everything which is religious. The world thenceforth becomes a temple, and life itself one continued act of adoration. The change is no less than this, that, whereas formerly God was seldom in our thoughts, we can now scarcely look upon anything without perceiving its relation to him. Every organized natural body, in the provisions which it contains for its sustentation and propagation, testifies a care on the part of the Creator expressly directed to these purposes. We are on all sides surrounded by such bodies, examined in their parts wonderfully curious, compared with one another no less wonderfully diversified, so that the mind as well as the eye may either expatiate in variety and multitude, or fix itself down to the investigation of particular divisions of the science. And in either case it will rise up from its occupation, possessed by the subject in a very different manner, and with a very different degree of influence, from what a mere assent to any verbal proposition which can be formed concerning the existence of the deity, at least that merely complying assent with which those about us are satisfied, and with which we are too apt to satisfy ourselves, will or can produce upon the thoughts. More especially may this difference be perceived in the degree of admiration and of awe with which the divinity is regarded, when represented to the understanding by its own remarks, its own reflections, and its own reasonings, compared with what is excited by any language that can be used by others. The works of nature want only to be contemplated. When contemplated, they have everything in them which can astonish by their greatness, for of the vast scale of operation through which our discoveries carry us, at one end we see an intelligent power arranging planetary systems, fixing, for instance, the trajectory of Saturn, or constructing a ring of 200,000 miles diameter to surround his body, and be suspended like a magnificent arch over the heads of his inhabitants, and at the other, bending a hooked tooth, concerting and providing an appropriate mechanism for the clasping and reclasping of the filaments of the feather of a hummingbird. We have proof not only of both these works proceeding from an intelligent agent, but of their proceeding from the same agent. For in the first place we can trace an identity of plan, a connection of system, from Saturn to our own globe, and when arrived upon our globe we can, in the second place, pursue the connection through all the organized, especially the animated, bodies which it supports. We can observe marks of a common relation, as well to one another, as to the elements of which their habitation is composed. Therefore one mind hath planned, or at least hath prescribed a general plan for, all these productions. One being has been concerned in all. Under this stupendous being we live. Our happiness, our existence, is in his hands. All we expect must come from him nor ought we to feel our situation insecure. In every nature, and in every portion of nature which we can descry, we find attention bestowed upon even the minutest parts. The hinges in the wings of an earwig, and the joints of its antennae, are as highly wrought as if the Creator had nothing else to finish. We see no signs of diminution of care by multiplicity of objects, 
or of distraction of thought by variety. We have no reason to fear, therefore, our being forgotten or overlooked or neglected. The existence and character of the deity is, in every view, the most interesting of all human speculations. In none, however, is it more so than as it facilitates the belief of the fundamental articles of revelation. It is a step to have it proved that there must be something in the world more than what we see. It is a further step to know that amongst the invisible things of nature there must be an intelligent mind concerned in its production, order, and support. These points being assured to us by natural theology, we may well leave to revelation the disclosure of many particulars which our researches cannot reach, respecting either the nature of this being as the original cause of all things, or his character and designs as a moral governor. And not only so, but the more full confirmation of other particulars, of which, though they do not lie altogether beyond our reasonings and our probabilities, the certainty is by no means equal to the importance. The true theist will be the first to listen to any credible communication of divine knowledge. Nothing which he has learned from natural theology will diminish his desire of further instruction or his disposition to receive it with humility and thankfulness. He wishes for light. He rejoices in light. His inward veneration of this great being will incline him to attend with the utmost seriousness not only to all that can be discovered concerning him by researches into nature, but to all that is taught by a revelation which gives reasonable proof of having proceeded from him. But above every other article of revealed religion does the anterior belief of a deity bear with the strongest force upon that grand point which gives indeed interest and importance to all the rest, the resurrection of the human dead. The thing might appear hopeless did we not see a power at work adequate to the effect, a power under the guidance of an intelligent will, and a power penetrating the inmost recesses of all substance. I am far from justifying the opinion of those who thought it a thing incredible that God should raise the dead. But I admit that it is first necessary to be persuaded that there is a God to do so. This being thoroughly settled in our minds, there seems to be nothing in this process, concealed as we confess it to be, which need to shock our belief. They who have taken up the opinion that the acts of the human mind depend upon organization, that the mind itself indeed consists in organization, are supposed to find a greater difficulty than others do in admitting a transition by death to a new state of sentient existence, because the old organization is apparently dissolved. But I do not see that any impracticability need be apprehended even by these, or that the change, even upon their hypothesis, is far removed from the analogy of some other operations which we know with certainty that the deity is carrying on. In the ordinary derivation of plants and animals from one another, a particle in many cases minuter than all assignable, all conceivable dimension, an aura, an effluvium, an infinitesimal, determines the organization of a future body, does no less than fix whether that which is about to be produced shall be a vegetable, a merely sentient or a rational being, an oak, a frog, or a philosopher, makes all these differences, gives to the future body its qualities and nature and species. And this particle, from which springs, and by which is determined, a whole future nature, itself proceeds from, and owes its constitution to, a prior body. Nevertheless, which is seen in plants most decisively, the incepted organization, though formed within and through and by a preceding organization, is not corrupted by its corruption, or destroyed by its dissolution. But, on the contrary, is sometimes extricated and developed by those very causes, survives and comes into action when the purpose for which it was prepared requires its use. Now, an economy which nature has adopted, when the purpose was to transfer an organization from one individual to another, 
may have something analogous to it when the purpose is to transmit an organization from one state of being to another state, and they who found thought in organization may see something in this analogy applicable to their difficulties. For whatever can transmit a similarity of organization will answer their purpose, because, according even to their own theory, it may be the vehicle of consciousness, and because consciousness carries identity and individuality along with it through all changes of form or visible qualities. In the most general case, that, as we have said, of the derivation of plants and animals from one another, the latent organization is either itself similar to the old organization, or has the power of communicating to new matter the old organic form. But it is not restricted to this rule. There are other cases, especially in the progress of insect life, in which the dormant organization does not much resemble that which encloses it, and still less suits with the situation in which the enclosing body is placed, but suits with a different situation to which it is destined. In the larva of the libellula, which lives constantly and has still long to live under water, are described the wings of a fly, which two years afterwards is to mount into the air. Is there nothing in this analogy? It serves at least to show that even in the observable course of nature, organizations are formed one beneath another, and amongst a thousand other instances, it shows completely that the deity can mold and fashion the parts of material nature so as to fulfill any purpose whatever which he is pleased to appoint. They who refer the operations of mind to a substance totally and essentially different from matter, as most certainly these operations, though affected by material causes, hold very little affinity to any properties of matter with which we are acquainted, adopt perhaps a juster reasoning and a better philosophy. And by these the considerations above suggested are not wanted, at least in the same degree. But to such as find, which some persons do find, an insuperable difficulty in shaking off an adherence to these analogies, which the corporeal world is continually suggesting to their thoughts, to such, I say, every consideration will be a relief which manifests the extent of that intelligent power which is acting in nature, the fruitfulness of its resources, the variety and aptness and success of its means, most especially every consideration which tends to show that in the translation of a conscious existence there is not, even in their own way of regarding it, anything greatly beyond or totally unlike what takes place in such parts, probably small parts, of the order of nature as are accessible to our observation. Again, if there be those who think that the contractedness and debility of the human faculties in our present state seem ill to accord with the high destinies which the expectations of religion point out to us, I would only ask them whether any one who saw a child two hours after its birth could suppose that it would ever come to understand fluxions, or who then shall say what farther amplification of intellectual powers, what accession of knowledge, what advance and improvement the rational faculty, be its constitution what it will, may not admit of when placed amidst new objects and endowed with a sensorium adapted as it undoubtedly will be, and as our present senses are, to the perception of those substances and of those properties of things with which our concern may lie. Upon the whole, in everything which respects this awful but, as we trust, glorious change, we have a wise and powerful being, the author in nature of infinitely various expedients for infinitely various ends, upon whom to rely for the choice and appointment of means adequate to the execution of any plan which his goodness or his justice may have formed for the moral and accountable part of his terrestrial creation. That great office rests with him. Be it ours to hope and prepare, under a firm and subtle persuasion, that, living and dying, we are his, that life is past in his constant presence, 
that death resigns us to his merciful disposal. End of section 32. End of Natural Theology, or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity Collected from the Appearances of Nature, by William Paley.